Well, actually, Rory, <laughs> you can't say the first line of this. Is it last week? Well, guys, we're back finally. Sorry about that for the delay and wait on this episode. But, uh, you know, things happen in life and people need to take some time for themselves and work on themselves, I guess. And, uh, you know, Dunn did that and we're ready to go. And I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all either. Are you sorry, Katie? Safety first, then teamwork. Um, I feel bad because I'm the one that has to post all of this on social media and like... Just blame me. Write my name next to it. Literally just lie to people that we'll be back in January and then we just don't Well, see things in January and then... Things happen, guys. And January was not a happy month for anybody, so... That was my birthday. I was fine with it. You guys couldn't just go along with that one. I, you guys had to fucking. I had a shitty. January. I had a shitty January. I had a shitty January. I had a shitty December. I had a shitty November. Shitty October, and uh, a lot of shitty shit leading up to that. So I graduated college. Katie had a great December. Katie's been balling. Yeah. So that's. <laughs> I've been doing nothing. That's pretty much the update here. You've been stitching, cross stitching. We probably shouldn't say that because then people are going to want to know why we haven't been making podcasts if I haven't been doing anything. Uh, because Jake Rory and Rory did. are putting stuff off. Procrastinators as fuck. Yeah. It's, it's, it wasn't for want of your fearless host's need to continue podcasting. It was our fault. I'm not sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then we also... Didn't post part three, so this is... Yeah, part three was terrible. We're re-recording okay. part three. Just um, let everybody know. It was a slog to try and get through. I think it got lost for a while. Well, It was almost edited point. all the it way through. It was almost edited all the way through. I, have, I still have one that's edited about 20 minutes from it's the ending. It's just bad. That 20 minutes takes fucking five and a half hours to get through half of. It's not even... That was my fault. Long. I was breathing too much. I was being a mouth breather. I'll take full responsibility. But now is my chance to redeem myself. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Every sentence you would inhale. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I was nervous, okay? I don't know why. I was just nervous. Yeah, these people don't even see us. They don't Anxiety flowing through my veins. For all they know, I could be a 644 Indian dude named Rajesh. We're going to start this episode. Anyways, yeah. At the end of the last episode, if you guys remember, Jesse Rugi had reluctantly taken Nick Markowitz to his father's house for the evening. Now, I know this was a while ago, but try to think back. They had kidnapped him, and Jesse had been basically stuck with him so far all weekend while everybody else went to party. People should probably just watch the movie, right? It's going to take less months. Yeah, if you haven't watched the movie between the f- second part and this one, I mean... That's why been, we were giving yeah, you Yeah, we were that giving break. you all that time, five months, to watch <laughs> Alpha movie. Dog. Yeah. And it's Justin Timberlake is in it, so... Yeah. JT, he's done things after that, too. So anyways, JT's character, Jesse Rugi, you know, he'd been stuck with Nick, and uh, because his boss, Jesse James Hollywood, didn't really know what to do with him after he kidnapped him. So... Now they're just basically chilling at Jesse's dad's house. For two days, Susan, Nick's mom, if you'll remember from five months ago, 
it's not five months in podcast world. That's what you got to remember. Uh, I just want to throw it. I just, you know, I like the throwback. Okay. Callback. Okay. Whatever they call it in podcast world, you know? Backdoor. Ah, yes. We're going backdoor this whole episode. For two days, Susan spent all of her time trying to contact anyone who might know where Nick was. She went to all of Nick's friends' houses and got all of their parents' numbers, hoping to be in contact with anyone who Nick might have contacted. She called Ben, his brother, multiple times, trying to fill him in and see if he had heard from Nick. It wasn't until the second night of Nick missing that Ben finally surfaced. After being out putting up flyers and searching, Susan walked into her house to find Ben sitting there, and he said he hadn't seen Nick. He mentioned he owed someone money, but at the time, no one connected the two situations. Susan offered to write Ben a check, but only because everyone was stressed out and she was hoping to ease tensions, not because she suspected that whoever Ben owed money to had kidnapped her son, like the movie implied. Ben did in fact call Hollywood. He left him a voicemail telling him the situation and asking him to keep an eye out for his brother. He acknowledged that they weren't on good terms, but asked him to put that aside and let him know if he heard anything. The thing was, Ben had heard a rumor from a friend that they had seen Nick partying with Hollywood the night before. The story never implied that Nick was in danger, so Ben figured Hollywood might be trying to piss him off by being buddy-buddy with his little brother. He made the call hoping to prove himself right. While all this was happening, and Jesse was essentially just hanging out with Nick, Hollywood had gone and told one other person, his lawyer, well, his dad's lawyer, Stephen Hogg, a man who looks like he belongs in a bowling league and fights nihilists. He received the call from Jesse Hollywood, and it was all hypotheticals. Jesse said his quote-unquote friends had kidnapped and beaten up a kid. Hogg wanted to know where the kid was, but Hollywood was more concerned with the consequences for his friends. Dirty Hogg. <laughs> Clever. That's the first thing you said in, two, in like a whole page. What? what? Dirty Hogg. <laughs> Mr. Hogg told him that kidnapping can carry up to eight years, but if there was ransom involved, the perpetrators could get life. This got Hollywood even more agitated and worked up. I think anyone could see right through the friend's story, which leaves little room for Hogg to claim ignorance. I think if you're a lawyer and someone calls you and they're like, theoretically, if I kidnap someone, I mean, it's like kidnap someone. Oh, he said it was his uh, friends. And that is what he's done instead. To this day, he insists he urged Hollywood to return Nick to his family and have his dad bring his checkbook with him. So, apparently he saw, did see right through it. He didn't believe it. Was the check they were going to offer with the child going to be the ransom, or did they ask for a ransom for Nick's return? I thought no one really knew where he was. No, he wanted Hollywood's dad to go pay Nick's parents to be quiet, basically, was what he was saying. Hush money. Hush yeah, money. Yeah, but is that where the ransom comes in, or was actual ransom asked for? Oh, they were talking about asking for a ransom. Oh, Okay. It's been five months, sorry. Or even if, I can't remember if they actually were talking about asking for a ransom or if the lawyer was just like, and by the way, you know, when you kidnap someone, it gets worse when you ask for a ransom. Either way, supposedly he, t he says he, uh, he told him that. At this point, Hollywood was angry and refusing to return Nick, and he stormed out of the lawyer's office. Another account from a friend of Hollywood, however, paints a different story. 
This source stated that Hogg had said if he was in the type of trouble that Hollywood was facing, he would, quote, dig a deep hole. And this is a statement that Mr. Hogg has always denied. I bet the statement was actually like, you've dug yourself a deep hole. <laughs> well, I mean, that is something you might tell someone who was kidnapping people. And they were just like, no, not yet, but I will. <laughs> That's a good idea, lawyer. Thank you. <laughs> is that you. what you're saying I should do? Uh, uh, no. Like well, it's it, Opposites Day. But it's ironic because they didn't dig a deep hole, did they? No, it was super shallow. No, it was shallow for sure. Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. If you haven't seen Alpha Dog in the last five months, <laughs> the fuck is wrong with you? Well, it's not like this story was going to end in rainbows and kittens or anything, so. <laughs> is there usually a kitten in a rainbow? I mean, when you're thinking of things that make you happy and stuff, and like a kitten riding a rainbow seems pretty pretty happy. A few hours after Hollywood left, Jack Hollywood, Pops Hollywood, we could say, called Hogg about a separate legal concern. Hogg suggested they need to meet in person to discuss an issue with his son, and Jack, who was out of town, came back immediately. Do you even know where he was? Eh, I'm going to say Vegas. Probably like Sacramento or something. It might have said in the book. I can't remember. Hmm. Do we, oh, huh, what? do we know what kind of lawyer he was? Hog? Yeah. Farm. <laughs> like, was he a criminal lawyer? Was there just so many criminal goings-on in this family that they needed one on hand constantly? Uh, he represented, like, four pigs on a farm. So, I, I, when you become a criminal, do you just find, like, a skeezy attorney to be your retained well, this Eagle actually Council, was his that? dad's like actual like business lawyer. He oh. wasn't like his act like he wasn't his dirty lawyer. He probably should have called in his dirty lawyer. He should have better called Saul, but he didn't. This is just his dad's regular lawyer, and he's probably irritated that he's having to deal with this shit. But he know this lawyer knows that they're, they're dealing drugs, though, right? I'm sure. You know, client lawyer privilege. Do a little coke off a table, and next thing you know, you got a lawyer. That's how I got my last lawyer. Your last lawyer sucked. It was you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> What's his case record? One for one? One for one, baby. Well, we took a plea. <laughs> you actually had to talk to the DA? No. Oh, they just offered you something they, and they you said offer, yes? They had offered it to him, but I was standby as his counsel. Yeah. I did it around. I was like, what do you think, Roar? I was like, like yeah. <laughs> Fucking take the deal, bro. Like, don't fuck around. Just get out of here. Upon being filled in, senior Hollywood, the dad, started contacting people. He got a hold of John Roberts, who apparently owned the van that Jesse and his friends had been driving when they kidnapped Nick. At one point, Jesse Hollywood showed up, but no matter what his parents tried, he wouldn't tell them where Nick was. Jack and John wanted to go to Santa Barbara and essentially bribe Nick to keep quiet, but they decided against it, mostly because... Hollywood started claiming that he couldn't find Jesse Rugi or Nick and that they must have gone somewhere else to lay low. Do we think Nick would have taken a bribe and actually kept quiet about it? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so as well. Well, I don't know. All, think- we, all, we, all we can go off is what his mom says and the movie. And in the movie, I think so. What his mom says, I think so. 
He wouldn't have told anyone ever, though, do you think? Oh, you know, he probably would have. It depends It depends on what type of night he had. If he had had a good night, he probably would tell a bunch of people. Like, I was partying at Fiesta with this big drug dealer, and fucking I was basically kidnapped. I can see that happening. Kids are dumb. That's probably what they were looking at. They were like, there's no way. We've, we've, we've chilled way too hard with this kid. He's not going to keep quiet. They should have just brought him right into their little fold. He was 15? 14? Get him young. That's a genuine question. How oh. old was he? Yeah, he was 15. Okay. Now that Jack and John couldn't find Jesse Ruge, or really even Jesse Hollywood at this point, they weren't able to intervene. And not only that, John had, had taken the van and had it thoroughly cleaned to eliminate any evidence. So that, that, that was pretty fucked. Once he thought his connection to the crime was absolved, John agreed to go find Nick and bring him back. So if you clean the van to get rid of evidence and then you offer to go find the kidnapped kid, is that not just pointing out that you know where the kidnapped kid is and you... Hey, maybe that you got an idea. The real issue is once, once you find the kidnapped kid, you're like, oh shit, what do I do? I already cleaned out the kidnapped kid van. I can't put him back in the van. But just knowing that there, there's a kid and he's kidnapped and where he might be, I feel like is pretty good evidence against you. I feel like you could have just skipped the van cleaning. <laughs> well, he liked a clean van, I think. I think it's good that he cleaned the van before the kid got murdered. <laughs> what? That's true. He looks way more suspicious after he that the kid dies. Like, that he knew about that the kid was going to die. At this point, he's only complicit to the kidnapping. Didn't they put the kid back in in the van? Oh, do they? I don't think they take him in the van. Nah, they take him in a car later. Oh, okay. In that kid's car, and he gets charged, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, In his mom's car, I think. We're about to find out in five months. Yeah, we'll find out. (laughs) This story, except for everything out of the movie, you know, which I've seen a million times, this is now just as much a surprise to me as it is to you. Here's the thing, this case was solved faster than it took us to get the three episodes out. <laughs> this is the last time Jake will be doing a three-parter, let's just say that. We, we cut it off at two next time. Meanwhile, Nick was having a pretty decent time for someone who was kidnapped. He was still hanging out with Jesse Ruge, and Jesse had invited some friends over for a kickback. They do a lot of kickbacks, if you'll recall. Callback. Call back till the kickback. The book made it out to be a party, but in reality they were just playing James Bond and smoking weed. Natasha Adams, Graham Presley, both 17, and Kelly Carpenter, 16, came over to Jesse's house and were introduced to his friend from L.A., Nick. That story didn't really age well, though, as the guests all noticed the way that Jesse was bossing Nick around didn't really line up with him being an out-of-town guest. How old was Jesse? Jesse was 19, I believe. He's He was, like, uh, out of the high school scene already. So, like, shouldn't have been inviting 16-year-olds to his kickbacks? Well, he was played by Justin Timberlake, so... What? <laughs> okay. No, Katie, the answer is no. Inviting when you're... 19 years old and fighting 16 year olds to your kickback like how did he even know 16 year olds well he was 16 at heart so my guess is that he was 18 in high school and the two 17 year olds that are currently there were sophomores still weird home skillets 
still weird. I think Definitely he got held weird. back. Not three years, though, just a year. <laughs> okay. I think he technically was like an, an old senior, so. Super senior? Super senior, yes. Is that what they call him these days? I think they've always been called that, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> After a bit of pressing, Nick spilled the beans to the kids about how he ended up there. The girls were pretty much blown away by this, even to the point where they were mad for Nick. But Nick explained to them that he didn't feel like he was in any danger, and he was going to hold out for his brother's sake. He didn't want to cause any extra problems for him, he said. Rugi had been trying to get an answer out of Hollywood for hours about what his plan was to do with Nick, but Hollywood didn't have a good answer yet, and he just kept telling him to hang out with the kid and make him your best friend. Not happy with his answer, Rugi left to go find Hollywood. The rest of the kids headed over to Natasha's house to get ready for a fiesta. This was the first time that Nick would be left without any of his original captors, and the elephant in the room was addressed when one of the girls told Nick to just leave. Again, he told them he didn't want to cause issues for his brother and he was going to stick it out. Right around this time, Rugi called and asked him to bring Nick back to his house. Hollywood and his girlfriend Michelle were there, but Hollywood still had no plans short of tie him up, throw him in the trunk, and let's go to Fiesta. That didn't happen, and Rugi was once again tasked with keeping Nick for the night. That night, Natasha Adams just couldn't shake the feeling that Nick was in trouble even if he didn't realize it. She knew Hollywood better than Nick did, and she knew he was essentially a loose cannon waiting to go off. She talked to her mom, who was a lawyer, although she didn't go into specifics, only telling her the basics. Drug debt, kidnapped, kid chilling with kidnappers, kidnappers? Kid chilling with kidnappers, etc. Her mom told her that she needed to go to the police, but Natasha was intimidated by Hollywood. She didn't go to the police until a few days later, once it was already too late. I just had a movie idea for kidnappers. <laughs> it's uh, velociraptors come across the boy in the jungle, and they raise him as their own, like a Mowgli. But... Jungle Book with dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Disney will probably buy it. I bet they would. The next day, Natasha, Graham, and Kelly Carpenter took a walk possibly at Natasha's prompting, to discuss what role, if any, they thought they needed to play here. In the course of the discussion, the question arose if Hollywood intended to kill Nick. Graham quickly shot the idea down, but then hesitated. Jesse was offered money, he admitted to the girls. He told them Hollywood had offered Rugi $2,000 to kill Nick, but Rugi had declined the money, telling Hollywood he hoped he was kidding. It's not a lot of money. Not a lot of money to kill somebody. Try to try to be a bigger baller, Hollywood. Maybe you won't get caught. We didn't have any money because all that bad ecstasy, right? That's true. Should have asked Daddy for more money. A small million dollar loan probably could have got him started. (laughs) Natasha, visibly stressed about the situation, started to cry, and Graham tried to assure her that Hollywood had the whole situation under control and no one was going to get hurt. They just needed to all keep quiet until it got worked out. Graham stressed how likely it was that Hollywood would go to prison if anyone found out about the kidnapping. When they got back to Rugi's, Nick could tell that Natasha had been crying and assured her not to worry about him. This would be a story he would tell his grandkids. Natasha went and found Rugi and made him promise that he would make sure Nick was returned safely, to which he swore to her that he would make sure he made it back to his family. With that, Natasha's fears were quelled, and she decided there was no need to go to the police. She now trusted Rugi to keep his word. 
she had done her part. And yeah, there's a little cynicism in my voice there. Because how can you trust this Ruby character? When it comes to kidnapping, you shouldn't trust kidnappers. I'm just saying. When it comes to kidnapping, you shouldn't trust anyone but yourself. And you gotta be the kidnapper. Wasn't Jesse Ruby kind of just like... Jesse Hollywood's bitch, basically? No, that was Ryan Hoyt, who was basically the, the bitch. He owed him a bunch of money. Ryan Hoyt owed Hollywood a bunch of money, so he was always having to pick up dog shit and stuff to work off his debt. Jack Hollywood and John Roberts had caught back up to Jesse Hollywood and his girlfriend, Michelle. He wanted to know where the kid was, and according to him, he wanted to get Nick home and the whole situation behind them. Jesse just handed his dad a pager number and told him that was Ryan Hoyt's number and he would know where to find Rugi and Nick. Why didn't he just tell his dad? Uh, I don't even know. I think he was like, I don't know, in the movie his dad was smacking him around. I think in reality he was probably like kind of embarrassed that he'd screwed the pooch. He was trying to just like pout in the corner. He's like, here, here's a number. I mean, his, his dad legitimately offered to pull him out of this yeah, and I think situation. he was still just being, um, like, privileged, you know? He was like, mm, Daddy, pull me out of this? Fine, here's the number. I'm going away. Do you think he was trying to reduce his involvement? Like, yeah, I took part in the kidnapping, but I have no idea what happened after. I don't know if he's that smart, but maybe. Like, his, I don't think, he's a teen, so his forethought may not be that. I think he's just entitled. Well, he's not even a teen, right? I think he's like 21 or some shit. Yeah, he was older than the rest, but. Yeah. He's still a young person. Yeah, he's still an idiot. Like, So I don't think he has developed that forethought thing. Otherwise, he never would have kidnapped the kid. <laughs> right? Jack paged Hoyt from a payphone, and they met up a bit later. Jack claimed he told Hoyt that if he told him where the kid was, he would go get him and take him home immediately. I don't know how to get in touch with him, Hoyt had told him. They pressed him for info, and he insisted he didn't have any. And he didn't have any control of the situation. Hoyt was very agitated, and Jack handed him his phone number and told him to go find the kid and call him as soon as he did. Whatever the consequences, that's what needs to happen. At least that's what Jack claims he said. I believe him. Yeah, I believe him too. Do you? He's got kids of his own, yeah. He's a shady fuck too. Yeah, but I don't think he wants a kid kidnapped one way or the other, even if he's shady. Probably true. It's like rule number one. Fuck with the kids. They're not kids. Hoyt never called Jack back. Supposedly, working on the orders of Jesse Hollywood, he had other plans. So it's hard to say here because, you know, we think that Jesse Hollywood had told his dad, oh, here, go handle the situation. But then Hoyt's, I think, maybe just behind on the email chain. He's going off orders he got yesterday type thing. Man. Do you think this problem would have been solved if they could have gotten a hold of Hoyt? They did get a hold of Hoyt. One time. No, but I mean, without post-information that he was going to murder this kid. I mean, probably. I, I I think that it was technically called off and Hoyt did it anyways. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little upset that they didn't just let the dad work this out. Well... I, it's hard to say. I mean, it depends on if if Jesse Hollywood really went and told his dad, here's Holt's number, he's got the kid, he'll take care of it. And then he went behind his dad's back and was like, don't listen to my dad, kill the kid. Or 
if there was a delay in information being passed along, mm. I don't even know. I don't even know. Either way, fuck Hoyt. We'll get to that right now. Tired of being at his house and struggling with the fact that he wanted to just turn Nick loose, Rugi suggested they get a hotel room and have a party because that's what they do best. That and kidnapping. They're so good at it. He had already told Nick he was going home, and even if he didn't get the word from Hollywood, he was going to give him 50 bucks and have him take a train or a bus home. First, though, a good old hotel party to raise everyone's spirits and maybe send Nick away with a good taste in his mouth, so to speak, for their little gang of miscreants. Can we call them miscreants? No, because they're criminals. Murderers. They're not a gang of murderers. Mailbox kickers. I think they're just idiot kids. Skid marks. Pretty much. Graham called his mom, Christina, who came and picked the kids up and gave them a ride to the Lemon Tree Inn in Santa Barbara. Like, who just picks their kids up and takes them to a hotel? My mom would. Your mom would? Okay. As long as she knew where I was. It's a strong parenting choice. <laughs> yep, I'll pick you up and drop you off at this hotel. Yeah, go fuck. <laughs> I mean, would you rather that or your kids be out on the street and you have no idea where they are? Yeah, fucking on a bus stop like a hobo. <laughs> if you're like, I'm going to go to this hotel and party. Yeah, I, I get it, I guess. <laughs> Were these the 15-year-old girls? 16 and 17. 16 and 17. Christina was fully unaware of the stolen boy in the back of her car and later said Nick never let on that anything was wrong. The party was again more of a kickback than a party with the same four kids from the day before, plus a third male that was not named in the book, who was not important. They drank, they smoked, and they spent time in the pool and jacuzzi. Everyone wanted to know what Nick was going to do once he was home, and he talked about a girl that he liked and that he was going to call her as soon as he got the chance. Supposedly. Hopefully this is not just like, you know, his mom making a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, because it seems like he's having a really good time. He's partying with these girls that I assume the movie was accurate about. They I don't were know. loose moraled. His mom said, you know, they that were they were 16, didn't. Rory. They were not loose moraled. They were being teenagers. His mom, his mom said that the whole wild things pool scene wasn't real, but who knows? Okay, yeah, I'm sure alcohol and teenagers. Go fuck, kids. Kids um, are never, ever having sex when they're drunk at a party. That just doesn't happen. Anyways. Mo- according to Nick's mom, no, never. It sounds like he was having a really good time partying, and he didn't need to, like, make plans. Like, he was almost lost his life. Like, oh, I'm going to go do this thing I was too scared to do before because now I'm... My eyes All are open. Hopped up yeah. on, yeah, oh, right. Yeah, on no. my life being saved. Life-changing like, experience. He just was gone for a few days partying. Well, he might have got a little ecstasy in him, if you believe the movie. And then just blew loads all up in a hot tub. I thought it was bunk <laughs> ecstasy. I thought it wasn't... <laughs> oh, I don't know. In the movie, they had fresh ecstasy by the end of the movie, you know? And they were, they were spitting it back and forth in each other's mouths. Wow. I don't remember that part. <laughs> Jake watched a different alpha <laughs> dog. Apparently. It was alpha dog with two G's. It was alpha doggy style. <laughs> okay, keep in mind we're talking about teenagers. Yeah. 
Graham and Nick had your run-of-the-mill drunken god discussion. Contrary to the movie, though, I don't think Nick and the girls boned in the jacuzzi. Oh. Well, yeah, it was in the pool in the movie. Well, that's just what Susan, she denied it, right? But what mom wouldn't, wouldn't deny it? I don't know. He seemed like a relatively innocent kid. I don't know if he would just straight go for innocent kids jacuzzi can, sex. Innocent kids can turn any pool into a saltwater pool. <laughs> While Nick and his new forced acquaintances were having a good time, Ryan Hoyt was doing his best yes-man impersonation. He was on his way to the party with a big blue duffel bag in tow. See, the thing is, after Jesse Ruge had turned down Hollywood's proposal to kill Nick in exchange for the measly $2,000, Hollywood offered the chance to broke bitch Hoyt next. Why didn't he offer it to him first? It seems like he was the one that would obviously say yes. Convenience. Convenience. He didn't want to have a lackey doing... beepers. Yeah, but convenience, Jesse already had the... Or Ruge already had the kid. You can't just beep Ryan and be like, hey, dude... Well, he trusted Jesse way more than he trusted Ryan when this all started. Theoretically, Ryan was his little bitch, you know? He didn't, he didn't really, like, you gotta, like, trust the guy that you're gonna have kill the kid. Shit. I don't think you should trust people that owe, that you, owe you money. Well, there's your first mistake. (laughs) That's my mistake? Probably. If you recall from episode one, Hoyt always owed Hollywood money. And this time, it was no different. That's why Hoyt jumped at the opportunity to clear his debt, and it seemingly never entered his mind that his puny drug debt wasn't worth a 15-year-old kid's life. Wait, so he didn't even offer Ryan money? No, he offered to clear his debt. Damn. That seems like the better option all around for Jesse. I mean... He will for sure do it. He doesn't have to pay him $2,000 that he doesn't have. Yeah, it's and- he has a bond with the other Jesse. They walked around and they'd be like, they had little friendship rings and they'd be like, Jesse squared and they'd pound fists. So they really tried to keep it between them. Here's the crazy thing is, like, this is murder on credit. Hell yeah. Like, that's fucking insane. Imagine like, if you owed someone 800 bucks and every morning you woke up and you're like, fuck, I might have to murder today. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Today could be the day I'm a murderer. Like, everyone in them has that cost of what you would owe someone to allow you to murder someone else, and this dude just happens to be real fucking low. Yeah, what if like, collection agencies just called you up and they're like, we need a hit? Tell you and what. We'll clear, your, we'll clear Comcast debt. Yeah. $241.68, or you can go out and kill Hillary Clinton. It's like, shit. I don't have $241 right now. <laughs> We would never kill Hillary Clinton just, around here. They just sell your debt to the guy with the next highest debt. So, like, eventually, like, this dude that owes, like, two grand, he's going to be killing the dude that owes $137 debt. <laughs> and so on and so forth. I like it. Around 11 p.m., Jesse Ruge announced that everyone who was at the hotel party needed to clear the fuck out. Hollywood was on his way, and it was time for Nick to go home. They said their goodbyes. And everyone except Rugi, Graham Presley, and Nick left the hotel. Nick went back inside and laid down to wait for his escort home. What no one was expecting, though, was for Ryan Hoyt to walk through the door carrying a stupid blue duffel bag. What was in it? Bra, 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 bra. Pow, pow. He needed a whole duffel bag for his gun? Yeah. For his Tech 9? <laughs> it was a Mac 10. Oh. oh we're, got, we're about to find out. It's been five months. 
Actually, it's been like 10 years since this happened, I think. Graham didn't even know who Hoyt was, but Rugi was obviously irritated that Hollywood had sent the lackey instead of coming there himself. Later, Rugi would say that he had no idea Nick wasn't going home until Hoyt showed up. That's when he knew something had gone very wrong. I think it went wrong when they kidnapped a 15-year-old kid. Hoyt took Rugi and the two left. They got into a red Honda Civic that Hollywood had provided by essentially tricking a friend into letting him borrow it. The friend, Casey Sheehan, had heard that Hollywood wanted to move, so he claims he didn't ask any questions why Hollywood and his girlfriend Michelle needed a vehicle. A Civic? To move? Yeah, I personally always use a Honda Civic to move furniture. Yeah, they were just moving some couches, guys. No big deal. Roof rack, baby. JDM as fuck. Hoyt and Rugi went to Rugi's father's house to get some duct tape, shovels, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill, like, moving stuff. Hoyt told Rugi he needed his help finding a spot to dig a grave. And Rugi didn't want anything to do with digging a grave, and he suggested his good buddy Graham, who knew the area much better. Luckily for Graham, they returned to the hotel room to get him. After driving around, they ended up at a somewhat remote trailhead called Lizard's Mouth. Graham said that when Hoyt ordered him to dig the grave... He didn't know if he was digging his own grave or not, but he was afraid of what Hoyt might do, so he trudged down the trail anyways and dug a lousy seven-foot-long by two-foot-deep hole. After this, they returned to the car and drove back to the hotel room. Millennials just don't have any drive to them. They just quit two feet down? Yeah. I think these guys were a little older. When did this happen in... uh... I think millennials are from like 77 to 95 or something like that. Okay, well then they fall right in there. Fucking millennials with their lack of drive. Back at the hotel, they taped Nick's hands and feet, but realized that they couldn't carry him downstairs and out to the parking lot, so they untaped him. Not very much forethought. Nick was still unaware that anything but a ride home was waiting for him. The four of them, Nick, Jesse Rugi, Graham Presley, and Hoyt, rode out to Lizard's Mouth, got out of the car, and hiked towards where the grave was already waiting. As they began the hike, Presley, still fearful he was going to be off for knowing too much, realized that it was Nick who, was, who they intended to kill, and he froze in his tracks, unable to proceed. He returned to the car where he cried and cried. Okay, maybe he just cried normally, but he waited for the others to return. And as they continued on without Graham, they passed some hikers on the way down the trail. Just another set of witnesses albeit unknowing witnesses, who saw Nick during his time being kidnapped. Did they walk past the grave? I don't know. I think the grave was a little bit off the trail, like I assume, and it was dark, so theoretically you might not notice it. Why did they let Graham just go back to the car? Could Jesse have just gone back to the car? I think, I mean, technically Jesse probably could, but I think they trusted Graham enough, I guess. I mean, if it's an option between murder and going back to the car, I probably would have picked going back to the car. Yeah, you're still an accomplice, but you maybe get a lesser sentence, as we might see here. Spoiler alert. Unless you haven't seen Alpha Dog. When they got to the grave, Hoyt made Nick sit next to it, and Jesse Rugi duct-taped Nick's hands behind his back, all the while lying, telling him he wasn't going to hurt him. Nick allowed all of this to happen, and just after... Someone either kicked Nick into the grave or hit him in the head with a shovel. As soon as Nick was in the ground, Ryan Hoyt pulled the trigger, and nine bullets tore through Nick's head and torso, 
leaving him in a heap at the bottom of the poorly dug grave. At least it was quick, I guess. Yeah. It's just a anti... Not anticlimactic, but it's very, uh, like... Final. (laughs) Final. In the movie, you really didn't expect it. You were, like, thinking everything was going to go well, and then... Boom. Was literally anyone not expecting it? They took him to a grave. Yeah, when, if you ever show up someplace and there's a freshly yeah, dug grave, grave. Before the grave, I mean. You're in trouble. Like, don't resist. Don't. If someone asks you to dig your own grave, say no. Hoyt placed the gun under Nick's legs, and then he and Rugi threw some leaves and dirt on the body before heading back down the hill. Did he have gloves on? Who? Hoyt. Ryan? I don't think so. So he just left the gun. Maybe he wiped it a bit, you know? He might have wiped it. Why wouldn't you take the gun? It was probably a dirty gun. He made, Maybe he did have gloves. Hopefully he had gloves, it was a dirty gun, and he tossed the dirty gun. Why else, right? He dumb. He dumb. He dumb. Hoyt wanted Graham to stay at the hotel until checkout in order to keep up the appearance that they had been there all night. But around 6 a.m., Presley couldn't sleep and was bugging out, so he called his mom for a ride telling her he was feeling ill. Not the good ill. Not like Lil Wayne. He wasn't like, Motherfucker, I'm ill. Mom. (laughs) Move on. It's Graham F. Presley. (laughs) (laughs) Later that morning, he called Natasha Adams, who had been the most concerned about Nick's well-being. He lied to her, telling her he had driven Nick home. So he called her just to lie to her? Yeah. he. I think he was probably sitting there like freaking out like, oh, fuck, 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 fuck. You know what I'll do? I'll just uh, call, make sure she doesn't suspect, tell her a little something, something. It was probably one of those things. Natasha was right. And if she doesn't, you know, hear from someone that Nick is all right, she will continue to be correct in her assumption that he is hurt. So like ease her mind so she doesn't go tell her mom that, Oh, yeah, give yourself a little time before yeah. the police catch on to you. And what did they think was going to happen? There's a missing kid now. In a who, two-foot grave. Who people have all seen with these people, like there are witnesses, and you're going to tell them, no, he's fine, I dropped him off at his house this morning. And you walked past two hikers on the way to the grave, so you know it's a populated area. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty busy trail. Like it was, It was out there, but just like any place... There's hipsters and there's health freaks that are out hiking. Just like in the Superstition Mountains. We have more people die there. Update episode. More people died in the Superstition Mountains last month. Moving on. The lie worked. And for the time being, Natasha's mind was at ease. It's worth noting that when Jesse came to her house later, he had a new story. Something about Hollywood showing up to the hotel room, intimidating Nick with a Mac 10 before aimlessly driving around L.A. until he later dropped them all off. The story, she later admitted, was very vague, but she managed to make herself believe it because Jesse was being his normal, happy, joking self. After a while, Hoyt asked Sheehan to take him shopping. This struck Sheehan as odd, since, as I mentioned before, Hoyt always owed Hollywood money. This prompted him to ask just how Hoyt could afford to go shopping, and he got an answer that probably made him wish he had never asked. He said, quote, I went up to Santa Barbara and I took care of the problem. What problem, Sheehan asked. The problem with Nick Markowitz, Hoyt replied. I don't know what you're talking about, Sheehan was insistent. It's probably better you don't know, Hoyt said. 
and I can only imagine the bullshit, condescending, self-righteous tone in his voice when he said it. So he was pretty proud of himself. Yeah. Well, yeah, he went from being number one lackey to number one hitman, he thinks, you know? He's like... Oh, I'm sure Jesse Hollywood still didn't give a flying fuck about him. Nah. Nah. Not at all. In fact, he probably at this point was like, fuck, I had the wrong guy do that. Loudmouth. I feel like Ryan should be concerned that he's next. Yeah. Well, I don't know. He can't hire anybody to kill anybody except for this guy. Hoyt's his hitman. And if you're the hitman, you'd only have to be worried about being hit by other hitmen. I mean, Jesse would... I feel like Jesse would be the one to do it, and then... Which Jesse? Hollywood. Or would they tap rings and go, Jesse squared, and kill him together? Yeah, they would do the, like a... Power Rangers. Like a firing squad type thing. They would only put one bullet in one gun and then both fire in that way. Huh. They didn't know who shot him, you know? Fair enough. Hoyt stayed there and bragged to other random people who came by the house about killing Nick. Sheehan said Hoyt was basically a known bullshitter, always making up stories to make himself seem more important than he was. So he wasn't sure if he should take him seriously or not about his supposed cleaning up the kidnap situation. Sheehan confronted Hollywood about the stories, but Hollywood told him not to worry about it, pal. It's a weird thing when you ask someone about murder and they say don't worry about it. It's literally just admitting that what you're bugging them about, you're right about. Don't worry about it. Rory, ask me if I murdered someone. You murder someone? Don't worry about it. Hmm. No, it just seems kind of like dickish. In in this setting. Fuck you guys, okay? It didn't matter. With Hoyt running his mouth and a body lying in a shallow grave barely off the beaten path, it was just a matter of time before everyone involved would realize the consequences of the pointless murder. Saturday, August 12th, three days after Nick was killed and six days after he had been kidnapped, 27-year-old Darla Gasick and two of her friends were hiking in Lizard's Mouth when they noticed what they thought to be a swarm of bees just off the trail. Upon further inspection, not only did they realize it was a swarm of flies, not bees, but that it was also accompanied by a horrendous smell of rotting flesh. Can I just ask, if you see a swarm of bees, do you approach it? Like, Actually, how, yeah. How often does that happen, where you're like, oh, is that a swarm of bees? Let's go check. <laughs> It's happened at least once, Jake and myself. Yeah. I mean... There was a swarm of bees under my dad's hot tub. Yeah, when it's at your house, you should go look and double check that it's bees when you're out in nature. You shouldn't be like, should we go double check and make sure those are bees? You hear those bees? This brings us back to the health people, the nature freaks, okay? They don't know what's good for them. They go out to Superstition Mountains and get killed. And that's what happens to people who go up to bees on the trail. Well, okay, so here's the thing. They found the body. You're getting ahead of yourself there, pal. A little kick of dirt revealed a pant leg and the corner of a shirt, and they immediately realized they had stumbled upon a poorly hidden body. Okay, now, Rory, you can say what you were just saying. Their interest in bees allowed them to help find a murder victim. Nice. All right, nerds. They called the cops, who took two hours to show up at the scene. The San Fernando Valley heat had not been easy on Nick's body, speeding up the decomp process. Maggots had burrowed into his face, and his body was bloated and discolored. His head and face were wrapped multiple times in duct tape, even covering his nose, 
and his hands had been duct taped behind his back. He was face up in the shallow grave, but because he had been shot nine times above the chest, decomposed and incomplete fingerprints were used to identify him officially. I say officially because there was one identifying item on the body that all but confirmed the body was Nick, the family heirloom ring that his brother had given him and Hollywood had tried to steal when they first grabbed him was still on his bloated finger. When Natasha saw the news of Nick's body being found, she went to a private lawyer who worked in the same firm as her mother, and the lawyer told her that if she went to the police with what she knew and told the truth, she would be granted full immunity. Earlier that day, the police had received a call from an anonymous source. He had given pretty much the exact same story as Natasha, so they were inclined to believe that her story was true. On August 16th, William Skidmore and Jesse Ruge were arrested by a SWAT team that had surrounded William's house without their noticing while they were inside. That same day, Graham Presley went down to the police station and turned himself in, which probably bought him a little bit of good grace. Yeah, you should always turn yourself in. Always turn yourself in. I mean, if he was crying in a car, what else did we expect? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Judging the man for having feelings. Not very woke of you, Katie. At 2 a.m. on August 17th, police tracked Ryan Hoyt down at a friend's house and arrested both of them on the spot. The friend was released a short time later when it was determined that he didn't have any connection to the murder. And we don't even know his name. Detectives interviewed Rugi first. He claimed that Hoyt was the killer, going so far as to say he treated Nick like he was his best friend and could only bring himself to put two shovels of dirt on Nick's body before breaking down and returning to the car. It's two more than any normal person should do. <laughs> yeah, right? The next interview slot belonged to Ryan Hoyt. Ryan told detectives that Hollywood had conveyed to him through another person that he could clear his debt if he took care of his problem with Nick Markowitz. He was given instructions and the address of the Lemon Tree Inn, and when the detectives accused him of being the one to have duct taped Nick before the murder, Ryan insisted that it had been Jesse Ruge. The detective told him Jesse had said the complete opposite, and Ryan became incredulous, acting like he was being framed for something worse than murder. All I did was kill him, he stated, probably not realizing how insane it sounded to any and everyone who would ever hear it. I mean... Body shows up with duct tape all over its face and hands behind its back. But you didn't do that. So in in my question would then be like, is in this guy's head, is he thinking that the duct tape is worse than the him shooting him? It seemed that way. Well, yeah. and the way he tells the police that he did it to pay off a debt, too, makes it sound like... He thought it was fine. The yeah. police would be like, oh, you had a drug debt? Okay. Murder is acceptable in that Yeah, case. we allow it then. Yeah, it's not... Why didn't you say that from the start? Yeah, it's not capital crime or premeditated murder at that point. It's just plain old good-fashioned. Well, here's the thing. Would, in that case, if since he said that, would he then not... Then it wouldn't be applicable to premeditated... The guy that hired him would get charged with premeditated murder? No. No? I thought that's how hitmen worked. <laughs> like, legitimately. No, he's still, pre he still brought a gun and took a kid out to the desert. Hmm. Premeditation doesn't have a certain amount of time on it. It can happen in an instant. Instant yeah, premeditation. I was just wondering if it was uh, 
there was a difference between him being hired to do the job and him coming up with the idea to do the job or if there was a gray area in there. No, no. I think they just give an extra person some some prison time at that point. They're like, we're still going to give you all that shit for doing it, and then we're going to give it to you, too, for planning it. So the planner can get the murder yeah. charge. Okay. Yeah, I think they just both get the murder. Or, yeah, I think they both get the murder charges, right? More than likely, yeah. I guess it would depend on what state you're in. Yeah, that's probably true. And what laws they have. But no, even if someone hired you, you're still going to get charged with first degree because you still premeditated, even if someone premeditated for you. Hmm. Once they had the confessions from Hoyt and Rugi, the detectives started what would become a five-year manhunt for Jesse James Hollywood. Such a dumb name. Such a dumb name. The day Nick was murdered, Hollywood leased a Lincoln Town car, drained his bank account, and went around to all his debtors collecting every dime he could. He and his mom drove to Palm Springs to pick up his girlfriend Michelle Lassiter, then they drove back to L.A. to visit William Skidmore. Upon arriving, Skidmore told Hollywood that Nick's body had been discovered and the cops were already looking for him. Hollywood freaked a bit and dipped to Las Vegas, taking Michelle with him. They stayed one night at the Bellagio, never leaving their room, but left the next morning when they got into an argument and Hollywood decided Vegas wasn't the ideal hideout spot. Their next hideout was Woodland Park, Colorado, where they got a hotel using Michelle's name, as if the cops weren't already aware of her existence. If you remember from episode one, the Hollywood family had ties to Colorado as Jack had unsuccessfully tried to open a sports bar there. Jesse's godfather, Richard Dispenza, still lived there, and Jack had already called ahead and told Richard that Jesse was in a bit of trouble and was going to be heading his way. Police were already aware of the Colorado connection, and they followed Jesse. Unfortunately, they were almost always one step behind him, barely missing him on multiple occasions. Police caught up to Richard, and he told them that Jesse and Michelle had stayed with him for one night and then up and left the next day, and he had absolutely no idea where they might be headed next. This wasn't the case, though. In reality, Richard had got the fugitives a room in Colorado Springs under his name, where they hid out from the 17th to the 20th. Once Jesse felt safe in Colorado Springs, he sent Michelle back home on a plane, probably thinking she was, slow she was slowing him down or something. When she walked into her house, she was greeted by detectives sitting in the living room talking to her parents. Michelle admitted that she had been with Jesse James Hollywood, but that he had been, quote, acting like a shithead, so she didn't know where he was anymore. On August 20th, Jesse called Richard and found out that the cops had just left his godfather's house and they were not going to be far behind him. He checked out of the hotel and started looking for a friend or someone he knew who might take him in. On the 23rd, Richard confessed to police that he had known where Jesse was up until recently but that now he had no idea where he was and couldn't get in touch with them. He was arrested for felony harboring of a fugitive. Jesse was able to bum a ride to one of his friends, Chas Salisbury's house, and he told him that he could really use a ride back to Las Vegas. Chas agreed. Chaz? Chaz. Chaz agreed and drove Hollywood all the way to Vegas, at which time Hollywood again changed his mind, deciding he wanted to go to L.A. instead. For whatever reason... Chaz again agreed and drove him all the way back to L.A. A good friend, I guess. Yeah, everybody could wish to have a friend like Chaz. Especially so with gas prices the way they are. Heir to the stake fortune. <laughs> Sal Salisbury. Imagine if you, that was the stake you were the heir to. That would suck. Salisbury steak's pretty good. Pretty good. There's some steaks that are bomb AF. Yeah. 
Chaz Salisbury's not one of them. Oh, yeah, imagine you could be Ch- Chaz Sirloin. Chaz T-Bone. Yeah. Chaz New York Strip Baby. You got to put the baby in there, too. Chaz Wagyu. Wagyu Chaz. Wagyu goes before Chaz because it's Japanese. I see. Once back in L.A., Salisbury took Hollywood to John Roberts' house. He was supposed to wait for him in the car to decide what their next move should be, but while Hollywood was in talking to Roberts, Salisbury decided he was too involved and literally just drove back home, taking $8,000 in cash with him that Hollywood had in his belongings in the car. When Salisbury returned to Colorado, he consulted a lawyer who advised him he needed to go to the police to avoid becoming an accomplice to the crime. He did, and he told police he had dropped Hollywood off at Robert's house on the 25th. On the 29th, the SWAT team surrounded Robert's house, and after an eight-hour standoff, Robert's came out of the house alone. He said that Jesse hadn't stayed there. Rather, he had given him 10K cash, and Jesse took off. Jesse had actually taken off to Seattle, where he hid out for two weeks trying to get a plan together. He finally found someone to smuggle him into Canada on a boat, and for the moment at least, he was out of the USA. In late October, early November 2000, a grand jury convened to determine if Ryan Hoyt, Jesse Ruge, Graham Presley, and James Hollywood should face charges of murder, kidnapping, and criminal conspiracy. After hearing the testimony of multiple people who had been witnesses during the days Nick was kidnapped, the jury indicted all four defendants, even though Jesse Hollywood's whereabouts were not known at the time. John Roberts testified that he and Jack Hollywood had met with Jesse after the kidnapping, but Jesse had not seemed to be concerned, and he didn't act like the situation was a big deal. Brian Affronti told the story of how Hollywood and his minions had picked him up to take him with them to Fiesta, and Nick was in the van when he got in. He also identified Exhibit 35 as the ring Nick had been wearing that belonged to his grandfather. Ryan Hoyt was the first of the four to go to trial. He said he didn't remember his confession or even speaking with detectives for that matter. He also claimed he wasn't even there when Nick was murdered. All he had done was bring a duffel bag to the Lemon Tree Motel, but that he thought it was full of weed. It wasn't until he found out that Nick had been murdered that he realized the bag contained a gun and not a bunch of ganja. On November 21st, 2001, after a day of deliberations, the jury found Hoyt guilty of first-degree murder. Despite the defense's attempts to have the death penalty removed from the case, on December 9th, the judge sentenced Ryan Hoyt to death, and he was sent to San Quentin to await his sentence. Before Jesse Ruge's trial in April 2002, a judge threw out his confession, ruling that the jury could not hear it as, it, as he felt it had been coerced. Jesse Ruge was convicted of kidnap for ransom, but acquitted of the murder charge. Ruge was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after seven years. He served 11 years and was released on October 24th, 2013. So when you're at trial like that, how, how do you convince the jury that you didn't know a kid was about to be murdered when you had just gone and dug a hole? Well, Ruby didn't dig the hole. Technically, Presley had to dig the hole. Ruby knew that the hole was being dug, though. Yeah, and what was he knew the purpose of the hole, too. Well, I mean, it was only two feet deep. He could have thought it was something else. <laughs> He yeah. also could have claimed that he thought it was for Graham. Ah. Ah, yes. I mean, there's plenty of defenses you could probably use to get around that. I thought it was for another dude we had with us. Yeah, there's plenty of people that could have been getting murdered that night. Mm-hmm. In July of 2002, a jury deadlocked on whether or not to convict Graham Presley of first-degree murder. A second trial took place in October 2002, and Presley was found guilty of second-degree murder. 
Even though he was tried as an adult, he was sentenced as a juvenile. This meant he would be held in, ju- in a juvie facility until he was 25. He was released right before his 25th birthday in 2007. In early 2005, the FBI had Jack Hollywood's phone tapped. His son Jesse James was, at this point, the youngest person ever placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. They noticed a new number regularly contacting Jack, and the one person on the other line was applying for a visa and planning to go to Brazil. An informant tipped the police that the person planning the trip was going to Brazil to meet with Jesse James, who at this point was going by the name Michael Costa Guru. Hero, maybe. I don't know. It's like a sandwich. Because Brazil does not have any extradition laws, they were going to have to find another way to bring Jesse back. Luckily for them, Hollywood was in Brazil using a bogus passport, which meant he was an illegal immigrant in their country. While they had no way of extraditing Hollywood back for the murder charge, his status in their country allowed them instead to deport him. Interpol officers in Brazil were going to have to be the ones to arrest Jesse, but because authorities knew that Jack Hollywood had many powerful contacts and he would be able to buy his son's freedom, they made sure to arrest him shortly before on charges of production of the date rape drug GHB. So... They found some found some stuff they could nab him on and got him all caught up right before this went down. Man, I wonder if GHB was like a big seller in Brazil at the time. I think it was. I don't know exactly, but um, this he was, was Jack, his Jesse's dad. Oh, that was yeah, this producing was, GHB. Yeah, oh, they shit. gave they got the dad on a rap for producing GHB so that he was dealing with his own legal bullshit while they arrested Jesse. That makes sense. By tracing calls, Interpol was able to determine the location of Hollywood through his phone and knew that a meeting was set up between him and his cousin the next day. Police got to the meeting spot before the cousin, and after a short standoff, he was taken into custody and deported back to the U.S., where charges were already waiting for him based on the previous indictment. Hollywood's lawyers attempted to stop the movie Alpha Dog from being released, saying it would be impossible for him to receive a fair trial with that much attention drawn to the case. The defense also claimed that the evidence was tarnished as the producer and writer of the movie had been granted access to the case files for research purposes. The judge denied this motion and the movie was released in 2006. In May 2009, Hollywood's trial began. From the beginning, the defense attempted to distract from the real issue of kidnapping and murder by taking the jury through long, drawn-out stories used to paint anyone other than Hollywood in poor light. That was just on the cross-examination. When it was their turn to call witnesses, the defense tried to turn the courtroom into a celebrity event. They wanted to call on filmmaker Nick Cassavetes and Justin Timberlake, who played Jesse Ruge's character in the movie. The defense claimed that they had access to the district attorney's notes for the making of the film and could therefore have relevant testimony. But the judge denied their request. In a last-ditch attempt to secure a not-guilty verdict, the defense brought in uh, Jerry Hollywood, Jesse James' older cousin. This was the first time anyone had ever questioned him. The defense thought they had a trick up their sleeve. At some point, Jerry had told the defense's investigator that Jesse had told him sometime before Nick was murdered that he was sending Nick home. Unfortunately for the defense, the old man did not come across as especially lucid, and he was not very persuasive mostly agreeing with the defense's statements. It took the jury four days of deliberation to find Jesse James Hollywood guilty of first-degree murder. They returned with the recommendation for life without parole instead of the death penalty. 
After receiving the sentence, Jack Hollywood walked over to Jeff Markowitz and offered an apology for his son's behavior. Damn. So is he uh, still in prison, obviously? He's still in prison, yep. They're all still in prison. Technically, uh, Hoyt's still waiting to be chaired. No, California has a moratorium on the death penalty. So he's not going to get chaired. No, he got um, his life now. Life without parole. Is he still going to stay in San Quentin then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone's still, like Scott Peterson's still in San Quentin. They just don't have a death row anymore. Everyone has life. You think they're homies? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, just imagine that all these shitty, terrible people get together and play poker. I mean, San Quentin's a huge prison. Spades, I guess. There's a lot, a lot of murderers we've probably discussed that are in San Quentin. All playing cards. Yeah, is that is that it for that's it. Alpha Dog? That's it for the Alpha Dog story. Now you know the rest of the Alpha Dog story. Yeah, go watch the movie. They've had five months. I'm sure they watched it by now. <laughs> they probably did have find find you know find time to watch the movie. Hopefully, but you know, there's no quarantine right now, so maybe they didn't. Next quarantine though, Alpha Dog for sure. So are we going to our every other week? Every other week episodes from here on out, brought to you by your host. Don't quote us on that. But. Shady, <laughs> Katie, Big Shoots Renner. All right, guys. <laughs> As always, if you have any questions, comments, or current concerns, feel free to reach out to us at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail dot com. That's f o u r cornerscrimecast at gmail dot com. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast, on Instagram at Four Corners Crimecast, and on Twitter at, I want to say, Four Corners Cast. Yeah, I think that's it. Rory, you're in charge of the Twitter. That's a bad idea. <laughs> and don't forget to go to our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can check out a full episode list, and you could send us an idea for an episode you might want to hear. You can get your free sticker by typing in the code Bingo Bango at checkout, getting a sexy vinyl sticker sent out to you, and uh, it'll all just be a great time. So uh, don't forget, if you ever have a choice between murder and returning to the car, go back to the car and cry. Yeah, you only get seven years that way. Yep. In juvie. I mean that more. If you're 25, you're not going to go to juvie. Shit. All right, guys. We'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Well, that happens when you're a kid. Yeah, nocturnal emissions can't happen. That's not what a nocturnal (laughs) emission is, Rory. It wasn't a wet dream.